You're listening to Attention, the audio journal for architecture. This is issue number five, the question of theory. This third piece addresses the question, how did architectural theory change over time? It features contributions by Joseph Godlewski, John May, Brian Norwood, Ivan Santoyo Orozco, Meredith Tenhor, and Marika Trotter. In this third issue of Attention, we address the question of theory through the lens of how we teach it today. This third piece addresses the question, how has architectural theory changed over time? In particular, the long durée of two millennia of architectural writings in the West. In doing so, we address head-on what has hovered over the first two pieces, the historicality of theory. We ask what the big paradigm changes are that this thing we call architectural theory has gone through in its long history. We ask how it was different in earlier centuries from the way that we conceive of it in recent history, particularly in the post-war period and since 1968. And we ask whether there are different genres, formats, media, or dominant questions and problems that have defined theory in different paradigmatic epochs. We start this episode with Marika Trotter, who gives us an account of what she sees as key moments in theory, from Alberti via Perrault, Ruskin, and Ledoux. Marika Trotter. There is a tradition of architectural theory that starts at least with Alberti and continues to the present in pretty unbroken line. I wouldn't place the first work of architectural theory with Vitruvius which I think was much more of a manual and a kind of collection of knowledge than it was a piece of theory. But maybe we could say that the first piece of theory in terms of the modern discourse was with Alberti. So then I think what's interesting about the way he approached theory was that he was trying, he was trying to define the discipline. He was also writing, I would say, primarily to patrons. He wasn't writing necessarily to his fellow architects. He certainly wasn't writing a manual that he thought any, anybody who was involved in the kind of physical work of producing a piece of architecture could read, right? He wrote in Latin and there were no illustrations. But the one thing that I think Alberti was doing that we're still trying to do is he was trying to define the discipline. This is what architects do. This is the value they offer. This is how they fit into kind of the elite cultural production of a specific moment in time. And even though they're involved in very, you know, meeting very basic needs to some extent, they're also about this other thing. And he's kind of helping to point out that that other thing is a really something essential uh, about architecture and it's how he wants architecture to be valued. So I think we're still doing that. We're still in the Albertian mode of theory in that big sense. If I think about another really important uh, moment in theory, maybe the debate between the ancients and moderns with Blondel and Perrault mm -hmm. in L'Age Classique. And that theory to me is much more about providing a set of principles that prescribe certain uh, possibilities in, in, in architecture. It's much more about sort of a, um, institutionalizing architecture, and I don't think theory does that anymore at all. Yet... The one thing that I think we still pick up from the Perrault-Blondel debate is this notion that one of the ways that architectural theory works is it works by bringing in concepts from other disciplines. So 
in their case, not just philosophy, even though philosophy was clearly involved, but uh, two different notions and modes of science. So math on the one hand and anatomy on the other. And so that I think we still do. That I think was a really useful idea. It was like, yeah, why don't we get current concepts of how we think the world works pulled from other discourses with a privileging science, science that is as knowledge, as contemporary knowledge about how the world works. And why don't we bring those to bear on how we think about architecture and what we think architects should do? And that we still do. But if I think about like another moment, I would go to Ruskin and Ville the Duke going back and forth about whether or not um, mountains and minerals and other inorganic forms of self-formation had anything to teach architecture. And of course, in both cases, the answer was yes, of course they do. So for Ruskin, again, thinking ethically as well as ontologically, there was an understanding that somehow there was a continuum of matter that architecture was bound up in that went all the way from the scale of how the planet worked to the scale of how an individual worked within the context of a particular society. And somewhere in there was architecture doing its own thing, forming itself out of the planet, out of planetary materials, and also via individuals within a particular society. And so architecture was embedded in an understanding about the world. And I think we still do that in architectural theory, and we should always do that in architectural theory. I don't think it's enough to say that architectural theory uh, should be about arguing the pros and cons of a specific project. I think architectural theory, as Ruskin demonstrated pretty well, is always about um, arguing for a particular set of possibilities or values that should change everything around them. So that I think we get from him. And then on the other hand, we have Ville Le Duc going, I am able to see structural principles at work in the world whereby things are put together and break themselves down. And I can see that these principles could be transposed from one kind uh, of matter to another. So from say the crystalline formations that he somehow saw in Gothic architecture to Mont Blanc as this kind of national monument of France, but then also uh, the other way around as well, uh, from some kind of natural uh, structure of, say, a bat wing back into the particular structural possibilities that were offered with the rise of iron. Ruskin hated Ville Le Duc's interpretation of the connections between the natural world and architecture. Ville Le Duc seemed to him to be completely um, irresponsible in the way that he was talking about ideal structures and ideal forms. And for Ruskin, there could only ever be the particular. So there were real moments of difference between the two of them, probably as pronounced as those between Perrault and Blondel. But they're both ways that we still approach architectural theory. Either we see architectural theory as uh, arguing for an ethical position that transcends any particular piece of architecture, or we see architectural theory as advocating for some kind of approach that also transcends a historical moment. So I think those things are still, we still have those on the table. Like every time you read a seminal piece of architectural theory, you're reading about the possible intellectual connections that one could make between some kernel in architecture as a discipline and everything else. So that we get that from Ruskin, for sure. But you're also reading a piece of advocacy for a particular approach to architecture that 
um, usually has connections to the past, to architecture's uh, history, and to the future, to where architecture could go. And surely we have a master of that in Viale Le Duc. In the next section, Brian Norwood questions the tendency of seeing history as a series of paradigms. Similarly, Joseph Godlewski suggests that transitions in architectural theory ought not be seen as linear, but always including many positions operating at the same time. Joseph Godlewski. This is a big question. I mean, I, I feel as though I could rehearse various transitions. You know, it took the form of treatises, and then there were, there were manifestos that went through this kind of journal and books phase, and now it's research. But I feel as though there's, there's something in those kind of tellings of, of, the, of the transitions that are a bit too linear and stable. When I think, in fact, you have so many positions operating at the same time, going in kind of different directions, so some being prescriptive and some not being prescriptive at all, some being maybe more scientific and then others not, not being scientific. If there's anything that can be said of the history of theory is that it's definitely not timeless. In fact, in terms of like how I define architecture theory, it, it's purposely unstable and is in this un, uneasy state. Um, I think that it is constantly adapting, responding to challenges in the built environment. Things I don't associate with that are the notion of timeless. Brian Norwood. I guess what unnerves me about the kind of history as a series of paradigms or as a set of ruptures is that those are the moments in which we start to create a kind of narrative of some genius or some situation in which something entirely new emerges out of out of some blank canvas. And I'm interested in the fact that the more you dig into some particular moment, the more you see connections and traces of the moments before it, projections of what's gonna come in the future. I think it's just that the construction of architectural history is a series of paradigms. To me, it doesn't appeal as a accurate description of history, but I, I think it doesn't appeal to me either in the way that it suggests that that theory is something that one creates in these kind of ruptures and breaks and new moments. I think it perpetuates a sense that you got to be in a crisis to to theorize something new, or you've, you've got to radically alter something to be doing theory. I think I prefer the idea of lots of small changes, lots of interconnected things. Joseph Godlewski. Talking in terms of paradigms is certainly helpful, but in fact, there's so much overlap with these things. And the, the, the rate at which they transition is not sequential or, or linear or equal in any way. There's all kinds of overlaps and, and, and crossbacks. It, architectural theory is, is absolutely historically contingent. It's a product of the questions and anxieties at the, at the time. Marika Trotter concludes her historical trajectory with the current state of the field. She stresses how architectural theory's past helps architecture move forward as a discipline. When people think about theory as we understand it today, I think we are still basically in a Wittkover mode of thought. And what I mean by that 
is identifying certain things that seem to be transhistorical, that seem to be deeply disciplinary, that seem to, in other words, not have any value outside of architecture itself, um, and locating those both in the past and in contemporary work. Even though we might not be comfortable with the dependence on formal geometry as the only thing that is unique to architecture, we might say nowadays, we're not so sure that's the only center. I still think that mode of reaching back to reach forward is still the way we validate within the discipline, is still the way we validate theory. So you have to prove that something has a past, that it has roots in architecture in order to uh, make it meaningful for the future. Because otherwise, it might be that you might be arguing for something that isn't very disciplinarily specific to architecture. And so by accident, you might be getting out of architectural theory altogether into some other kind of theory. Then that, wouldn't, that just wouldn't be very useful. Because then you might accidentally be talking about economic theory, for example, or anthropology, or uh, socio-political theory, or all the other kinds of things that now I think a lot of people get distracted by um, when they're meant to be doing or they could be doing architectural theory. In what follows, Yvonne Santoya Orozco offers a reading of historical change from the perspective of a shift in architecture's audience over time. She suggests that the direction of these shifts has been towards an increasing introspection and that this is possibly because architectural theory is still trying to define its body of knowledge as a discipline. What is the audience of architectural theory over time? So how has the audience of architectural theory changed historically, for example? You know, if we think back in the Cinquecento, uh, for example, with Alberti, to me it's, it's relevant that Alberti was a papal functionary. He was engaged with power relations during the time. It's crucial that his dedication of his, of his writings, of his works, were um, addressing prominent figures that were exercising some level of political power, right? The question of audience that historically architectural theory was addressing very directly. To me, the question is like, how has that changed? And it seems to me that today, I think there's a genealogy to be composed around this question of audience. Uh, but it seems to me that if we kind of begin to move over time, we have shifted we have inverted these roles and instead of speaking directly to connect our writings with the structures of power, we are perhaps speaking only to ourselves. Yeah, we're moving from speaking to the Pope, to a wider media, to students, to the profession, to architects. Um, if we get closer to perhaps to the 19th century, it's also kind of the anxiety to define a profession, right? To define the discipline of architecture. Uh, so we have to kind of consolidate the body of knowledge. Uh, and I think we're still, I think it's still to define that body of knowledge uh, and to whom do we speak. Uh, it's, still, it's still a question there, right? Uh, I mean, if you speak to a lawyer or to a doctor um, and you ask <laughs> this question, they will have a very straight answer. But that's why we're having this discussion today, because the body of knowledge of architecture is very hard to define, but it's also hard to define its audience. And I think um, by looking at the audiences of architecture, we can perhaps begin to understand the shifts. It's almost a contradiction there, right? Because in our attempt to define our, our terms, architecture terms, 
the, the capacity of theory to destabilize has become inward. It has, been, it has become introspected. So I think it's still there. The problem is like, to, to what end? So if that end is only introverted, is only to speak among ourselves, then what are the limits of architectural theory? And do we have to expand that? In the following and final part, Meredith Tenhall considers the changes that took place since the late 1960s, while John May concentrates on the changes he experienced in academia since the 2000s. Both Meredith and John address the question of professional legitimation and the effect the tenorial process had on architectural theory. John May concludes by acknowledging the exhaustion of the productive debates that animated architectural theory from the 1960s to the 1990s, and suggesting that current urgent issues like climate change and neoliberalism do indeed require a different approach. I guess I could talk maybe about the past 50 years or so, which I've been studying in, in some work. One of the things that I've, I've looked at in my own work is how architecture as a discipline has opened itself to insights from other fields and, and where those openings have taken place. So. Um, when I was a graduate student, I, I did a bunch of research on oppositions and the editors of oppositions and the roles that they played in trying to import certain kinds of theories from philosophy, from the sort of loose realm of French theory, which included feminist theory and political theory and sort of post-68 theory and, and bring them to the United States. And so, you know, one big way in which architectural theory did change after that opposition's moment in the U.S. is that, you know, in order to function, as everyone well knows, as a, as a theorist at that time, you, you know, you really needed to be reading Benjamin and Derrida and Deleuze and um, that their theories were taken up by architects transformed pretty radically <laughs> to suit... Um, different needs, architectural needs, and sort of mutated to form theories that would respond to questions about form and architecture, and, you know, used as a means of professional legitimation. So one thing that seems to me really important about architectural theory in its recent history is that it relied on theories from other disciplines in part because architectural theorists were housed in universities and needed to legitimate their own work to tenure committees and things like that. So in order to create itself as a, as a field with PhD programs and a whole legitimating apparatus around it, architecture needed to have theory, and it needed to have its theory be in conversation with theories um, that were important in other fields. So if we look at the recent history of architectural theory, it's been largely about creating practices of hospitality, but also hostility, to use Derrida's terms, um, to work from other disciplines. So that you're sort of welcomed in, but then totally mutated and transformed in the process. What I'm about to say is probably particular to my educational context, but when I was in school, there was a particular dominance of a kind of theoretical professionalism, which, however unintentionally, had become a kind of low-risk tenurial program and had even worked its way, I think, into studio pedagogy in rather deep ways. And I came to see that as the end of what had been an extremely productive period for architectural theory, that is to say the 68 
period in, in which a set of oppositions, I mean, no pun intended, but a set of oppositions or arguments had been set up, um, which produced a period of really productive argumentation and and debate around certain kinds of theoretical issues, whether it's uh, autonomy or urbanism, and that they prove a really important connection between historical reasoning and studio culture. I think by the time that I was in school, which is to say uh, around the year 2000 and after, I, my own sense is that that project had really run its course and had become exhausted. It had exhausted the language of its own basis. That incredibly productive period, it was really framed around two poles. And you can call them by different terms. We could call it context and syntax, or we could call it urbanism and autonomy. Does architecture fundamentally arise from what is imagined to be its internal workings, which is to say something like geometry and syntax, or ought architecture arise from what's imagined to be fundamentally exterior to the architectural object, that is to say its urbanistic context? And these are the figures of, of Venturi and later Coolhouse, and of course Eisenman and later all of his progeny. And so I think... Um, it's not that there was any agreement that was reached, but it did it did set up a, it set the terms of of discussion, and it produced two enormously productive polls for that generation. I just think that by the time I was in school, there wasn't there wasn't any energy left in those polls, and they had lost their sort of magnetism, and things were spinning off into simply um, rehearsing through certain kinds of of played out arguments. And in particular, what they seemed fundamentally incapable of addressing were environmentalism and environmentalism's connection to fundamental basic questions about technological modernity. And I should say, by the way, that it's too much to expect a body of thought to take on everything. And so this isn't necessarily a critique of that generation's thought. It's simply a, a, an acknowledgement that, as in Deleuze's famous quote, that philosophy is for the creation of concepts for conditions that necessarily change. And the conditions had simply changed by the time I was in school. By the time I was educated, and still today, the two fundamental realities of our lives are climate change and neoliberalism. And if your theoretical project does not have some bearing on those two things, then I can't see what it's worth. This discussion of how theory has changed over time in this third piece led to differing opinions, most notably over different conceptions of history itself. Whether it can be understood in paradigmatic terms or more contingent and multi-connected terms. Those who noted some of the paradigm shifts in the long durée of architectural theory in the West over the past two millennia spoke of how the audience of that architectural theory has changed over time, and with it how there have been changes in architectural theory's relation to power. One frequent observation was that architectural theory became increasingly introverted over time, especially in the post-war period with the institutionalization of theory within the context of the university. They also spoke of changes in its genres or the media by which theory is produced, most notably from treatises through journals towards research. And they spoke of changes in the role that theory plays in relation to design, from prescribing and legitimating architectural design towards practices of critique an ideological debate. But in noting these changes, there was opportunity to highlight constancies, and with this, characteristics of theory that seem somewhat persistent in the Western tradition.
Whether speaking of Vitruvius, Alberti, Perrault, Ruskin, or Ledoux, theory can still be seen as trying to define the discipline, as looking to other disciplines to do this, as looking to the past in order to think the future, and as marking an ethical position or approach in order to change the world. Others in our discussion, however, rejected viewing history in terms of paradigmatic shifts at all, preferring to see a simultaneity of myriad small tendencies and overlapping and recurring positions. Some rejected notions of historical change because it implies protagonists and agents of that change, or moments of crisis that aren't accurately historical. Already, this historical reflection began to reflect on problems addressed in the forthcoming pieces, whether architectural theory should open itself up to other audiences and questions beyond its recent debates, including, for example, to issues of climate change and neoliberal economics. In the next piece, we focus specifically on the question of opening up the very history and present of theory towards global and non-Western traditions. You've been listening to Attention, the audio journal for architecture. Issue 5, The Question of Theory. Issue 5 was written and directed by Joseph Bedford and was edited and produced by Ari Korati. Thanks to the Graham Foundation for generous support.